Let's pray with a, a new sense of praise. Oh, Lord God, we thank you that you are the God of the wilderness. Lord, we know you're God when we're up on the mountaintop, but when we're in the, the valley, Lord, that's when we discover whole other sides to you. We discover your sustaining power. We discover, Lord, as Cindy shared, that you have, Lord, a whole ministry for us, not born out of great strength, but born out of weakness. And Lord, um, one born out of hope that has been planted in us, Lord, by you. We thank you, Lord, for the way that you use all different kinds of people. When we say, boy, that was good luck that there was a pastor there, Lord, we realize it's not luck. It's providence. Lord, when, uh, when someone uh, suggests a new treatment, Lord, you invite us to see with eyes of faith to see you at work. And Lord, I, th I thank you that you are a God who guides and provides. And Lord, whoever may be watching or listening online or in person today, Lord, that needs a word of hope, Lord, I pray that this would be the word of hope from you, specially wrapped and delivered to them. Amen. Well, during the season of Lent, we've focusing our attention in a special way on our Lord Jesus Christ and his time and experiences in the wilderness. Last week, we looked at the time that he physically spent in the wilderness being tested and tempted by Satan, who tried to subvert Jesus' identity and his mission. And in the story that we'll be looking at today, Jesus is actually physically in a garden but the agony he faces is excruciating. Jesus had known and he had told his disciples on no less than three occasions that he must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. This is why Luke actually highlights for us already back in chapter 9, verse 51, that as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, and there was a long ministry, but he knew, it says he resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He knew what awaited him. He wants us to know, as Jesus knew, that his entire ministry was carried out in the shadow of the cross. From the moment of his baptism and God's affirmation of his unique identity and mission, Jesus knew that living God's way, rather than Satan's way, would ultimately cost him his life. And yet he refused Satan's offers to, to take the easy way out, to limit his obedience, and instead be totally devoted to the Father, 100%. By the time we come to Luke 22, and I invite you to turn to Luke 22, be looking at a passage in there today. By the time we come to Luke 22, the cross is no longer, you know, a distant reality. No, it has become an incredibly present one. 
Jesus has had his last supper with his disciples, and he has told them in Luke 22, verse 37, that what the prophet Isaiah had predicted, that the Messiah would be numbered with the transgressors and, and then pour out his life unto death for them, he said, that must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. Indeed, that very night, his enemies would come to arrest him, put him on trial, and in a great miscarriage of justice, sentence him to death. To death on a cross. So what will Jesus do when he is facing his impending death? Not just any death, but one that is off the charts in terms of the magnitude of its physical, emotional, and spiritual pain. And what was it like to see and hear Jesus himself walk through the wilderness, through the valley of the shadow of death? Well, I guarantee that what we will see and hear Jesus do is worthy of our undivided attention. Many followers of Christ have found much wisdom and strength to face their own wilderness experiences including their own death, by immersing themselves in the story of what Jesus did and what he counseled his disciples to do as well. So let's read Luke chapter 22, verses 39 to 46. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down, and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from, the prayer, from prayer and went back to his disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. If you're familiar with the story of Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, you may have noticed that Luke's account appears to be missing certain aspects of the story that you were expecting. That was my experience uh, reading it. Luke's account is actually significantly shorter, if you uh, notice on the, on the slide. Is it up? No, not there. It's going to be coming. There it is. So there's something called a gospel parallels where each of the stories, you can see them side by side. And just at a glance, it looks like the same. But Luke's ends, and if you flip the next slide, you will see, oh, Matthew and Mark continue. Their version is much longer. And so I was expecting, for example, that Jesus would pray the same thing three times. But Matthew and, and Mark have that. A more detailed study reveals that Luke is more selective because there are different emphasis and elements that he wants to highlight here, but also elsewhere. 
If we were to line up the Gospels, we would have Luke to thank for the Christmas story, for Jesus' birth, right? A long narrative. Nobody else has that Luke, so he used that space well. Luke has many extra parables that we would not know. Can you imagine not knowing the story of the prodigal son? Hmm, it's in Luke. How about the, the parable of the Good Samaritan? Only Luke. So, you know, don't criticize him for being short here. He uses that space well elsewhere. But he also, in being brief, draws attention in just a unique way, maybe. A brief example in the passage before we get into it more in detail. Luke, for example, omits the command to the disciples found in Mark and Matthew at this point. Sit here while I pray, Jesus says. In its place, Luke has, pray that you will not fall into temptation. That's what he highlights. So when the one there saying, I'm going to pray, Luke is highlighting Jesus telling them, you guys need to be in prayer too. And similar counsel will appear at the end of this little story in verse 46. With this imperative then, pray that you will not fall into temptation, Luke brackets the whole story. It is Luke's way of emphasizing the theme and critical importance of prayer in the wilderness. Well, let's look at the passage in more detail, beginning with the place that Jesus went. The place Jesus went to pray as he was facing death, we are told, was his usual place. He was in the habit of going to pray at the Mount of Olives, a grove of uh, ancient olive trees on the sides of a hill in Jerusalem. And Matthew and Mark refer more specifically to that place at the bottom of that hill, a garden called Gethsemane, which is the Aramaic word, which in Aramaic means it's the word for olive press. It was at the foot of that Mount of Olives, so named where it was that they pressed the fresh olives. They were crushed under a large millstone to squeeze out the precious oil from them. And it is hard to imagine Jesus not seeing symbolic significance in this. Forever after that night, it would be known by his followers as the place where their master experienced the crushing weight of the world's evil so that the precious oil of his sacrifice and healing would flow out for others. Well, Luke also tells us about Jesus' purpose. Jesus was followed by his disciples. Indeed, on reaching that place, he has, gone to he has gone to pray, and he also instructs his disciples, as we saw, to pray that you will not fall into temptation. See, Jesus' purpose for going here, you know, to this garden was not to escape the reality facing him, but to prepare for it with uninterrupted prayer. Matthew and Mark highlight the critical of importance of Jesus praying in the face of it, while Luke highlights the critical importance that Jesus placed on his disciples following his example. Pray that you will not fall into temptation. Actually, of the gospel writers, Luke is the one who regularly draws our attention to Jesus' prayer life. In uh, Jesus, I mean, Luke, for example, has the unique line, Jesus often went to lonely places or isolated places and prayed. 
Prayer was a deeply ingrained habit of Jesus, a lifeline to his father that he longed to see instilled in his disciples. And notice he not only tells them about how important and essential praying is, you know, to avoid falling into temptation. The temptation probably for the disciples we're facing was to flee or, you know, to pull out a sword and try to fight or to deny any association with him, all of which they will indeed fail at. He not only tells them the importance of prayer, he is showing them firsthand how critically important it is. And we also then notice Jesus' posture. Though he withdraws from them to pray on his own, he is only, as, as Luke puts it, only a stone's throw away. They could see him. Close enough for them to see the posture that he takes. Luke says he knelt down and prayed. But Matthew 26 verse 39 says, He fell with his face to the ground and prayed. Jesus' posture is important and would have drawn special attention to the submissiveness in his prayer as well as the urgency and intensity of what he was praying about. Despite his disciples' prayerlessness here, they would get the lesson. In the book of Acts, Luke's follow-up to the story of Jesus we will see his disciples regularly adopting this posture in their prayer in times of intense prayer. We will see it in the martyr Stephen in Acts 7, in Peter in chapter 9, in Paul in chapter 20 and 21 of Acts. I was in a meeting with some fellow pastors this week. We were going over a report that has been done on the health and vitality of our churches. In uh, the Mennonite Brethren in, Beast, in British Columbia. And uh, the consultant that had interviewed many different uh, people gave us the report. And the report was basically that all of us are really failing in evangelism and outreach. And when we shared amongst ourselves, when was the last time you know, you shared the gospel with someone. Was it this past week? Was it the past month? This past year? And, and we spent some time in confession. And one of brothers next to me, we all got down on our knees, but he got down with his face on the ground like that. Posture matters. It says where we're at. Well, we come next to the content of Jesus' prayer, of which we are given really a, a brief summary, the nugget, the essential. He addresses God as Father. We could just brush by that, but it was something unique, distinctly Jesus-like. He was the one that would teach his disciples, this then is how you should pray, Father. Not a God who is you know, trying to overcome some great reluctance, but one who is longing to hear his children. And Jesus would teach his disciples and his followers, this is how you should relate to God as Father. On this occasion, he pours out his heart, saying, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. 
the cup, the cup that Jesus is asking his father to take from him. What is that? It's a metaphor with roots going deep back into the Old Testament, where it's used by prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel to refer to the cup of God's wrath and judgment upon the wicked. Jews it's used of, and Gentiles for their sin and persistent rebellion against God. Here's one sample, Jeremiah 25, verses 15 to 16. Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. And when they drink it, they will stagger and go mad because of the sword I will send among them. No wonder Jesus prayed with such agony for this cup of divine judgment to be taken away. We dare not gloss over or hurry past this. We need to pause and to remember what he went through for us. What Jesus was facing was not merely a martyr's death, as some think, but the substitutionary sacrificial death that Isaiah had foretold that God's suffering servant would bear for others. For others. We know this because Jesus has just quoted the words of Isaiah in verse 37, just before this, with his disciples, where he says, It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. That's the closing line from the song in Isaiah, famous song, Isaiah 53, all about God's chosen servant being pierced for our rebellion, it says, beaten so we could be whole, whipped so we could be healed. And that Isaiah song ends by saying, he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. How could the thought of having to drink in the full measure of God's wrath the world deserved be anything but utterly repulsive? Many of us have probably had the experience of having to take some medicine that tasted awful. One of our children when they were young, oh my, refused any medicine. Even when, you know, the ear infection was just in the fever, sometimes it took two of us, you know, it probably looked like child abuse, holding the child down to try to get some medicine. Everything was reacting and pushing against that. Well, a little glimpse, how much more that you are having to drink in, so to speak, what all of the atrocities that have committed in the world. You think we have sometimes a momentary glimpse. We are guilty. We feel guilty or shame over something that we should not have done. Now magnify that. And Jesus is having to drink in all of that for us. The sins of the whole world. And yet Jesus would not allow his natural revulsion to this or his father's revulsion to this, for his son to go through this. He would not allow that to overcome his commitment to the divine plan and purpose for his life, our salvation. What supernatural love for the father and for us it took, right? In the face of having to bear the consequences of the sin for us, 
It is little wonder why the physical, emotional, and spiritual pressure on him was so intense. And I think we should love him all the more for what he took and did for us. Which brings me finally to Jesus' physiology. I had to keep up with the P's here. But it is. It is. And actually, before we look more closely at uh, verses 43 to 44, I do want to draw your attention to a footnote. If you have your Bibles open, uh, you may notice, probably almost all your, all your English translations will have a little note at the end of these verses. Many early manuscripts do not have verses 43 to 44. And yet, most of our trans- English translations include it because... What it might also say is there are also ancient and widespread witnesses in favor of the genuineness of this text. Now, there is a strong case to be made for some having omitted these. Like, if, when the verses are suddenly missing, we wonder, like, why is that? Was there, you know, there's different reasons why it can happen, but sometimes it can be for doctrinal reasons. You know, this seems so un-Jesus-like. For example, one ancient writer you know, verbalize this, put it this way. Surely, he said, he who is adored and glorified with fear and trembling by all the celestial powers did not need the strengthening of an angel. But he did. For the window that these verses give into the depths of Jesus' anguish experienced is actually echoed by Matthew and Mark, where there is no textual uncertainty. They use different language, but they also speak of Jesus being deeply distressed and troubled and saying to his disciples, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And just as the Father had provided angelic support to Jesus during his testing in the wilderness, if you recall that, so too here he provides it, immediately following Jesus, surrendering himself to the Father's will, whatever the cost. And so in the place of the frequency of Jesus' prayer that Matthew and Mark note three times, in the place of that frequency, Luke's single reference focuses on the intensity of the praying. This was Jesus' dark night of the soul, and it requiring angelic support, I think, to give him the strength that he needed to carry through with the full implications of what he had just said to the Father that he had submitted to in prayer. This was the deepest and most deadly conflict with Satan in history. What is taking place is a struggle of cosmic proportions. This is the hour, Jesus will say in verse 53, when darkness reigns. When his enemies are given free reign to do to God's Son whatever they wish. The heart of all people will be laid bare and true intentions and deeds exposed for what they are. To quote Jesus from John chapter 3. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world. But people love darkness. Instead of light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. They did not want to be exposed. So they'd rather remove the standard of true righteousness and holiness. As 
Jesus' representatives in the world, we too live on the front lines of this cosmic struggle. Revelation says that very clearly, but uh, other passages do as well. And Jesus counsels his, counsels his disciples then, and he counsels us now to pray that we will not fall into temptation. Because in so many places in our own city and country, followers of Jesus are falling into temptation and giving into the very temptations that Jesus resisted. Rather than resist the values and ideologies of the world, people of all ages, as well as entire churches and denominations, are becoming spokesmen for the values and ideologies of the world, including my former church, which grieves me deeply. Brothers and sisters, how utterly foolish we are if we neglect the wisdom of Jesus' counsel and example to pray that we will not fall into temptation. Only then will we be able to speak with truth and with humility and courage like Jesus did. And just as Jesus emerged from his time of testing in the wilderness, laser-focused on his mission— so too he emerges from his testing in Gethsemane, empowered to carry out that mission, whatever the cost. This is what he longs for, and he prays for us also. To have that kind of courage that he did when he says, let us go, it's time. Well, some of the applications for us, two, come to mind for me. One, one is to embrace what Jesus did for us. Maybe you've never embraced. Maybe you thought Jesus' death was just a martyr's death, you know? He, he, he died standing up for, for truth, and uh, it was a terrible case of injustice. But no, it was more than that, far more. What made it so agonizing was he was taking upon himself the sins of the whole world. There is no other way to be saved. Any suggestion that we, may, that we can be saved without Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice and death for us is to say that God is a liar. I say that because when Jesus prayed for God to find another way, the response that he got was there is no other way. There is no other way than to drink this cup. There is no other way for the world to be forgiven and saved from the judgment they deserve. The only way for us to be saved and restored to a relationship with our Creator was and is through the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for us. The Father said, there is no other way. We embrace what Jesus did for us by opening up our lives, admitting that we, our own sin and rebellion against him, and accepting the forgiveness. One of his words on the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't really understand what they are doing. And secondly, follow the example that Jesus set for us. 
We need to surrender our lives to the Father like Jesus did. We need to fill our hearts and minds with God's Word like Jesus did. We need to take advantage of the same lifeline to the Father that Jesus did. Until talking with our Father in heaven in prayer becomes a habit just like it was with Jesus. He knew exactly where to go when he came to the wilderness, the hardest challenges of life, to his usual place with his usual friends to be able to pray together. Uh, in a moment, I'm going to be praying and inviting the, the worship team to come up. And after that, we're going to teach you a very simple song, and I will introduce that to you. But uh, let us pray as the team comes up. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you what you went through for us. We thank you how deep your love for the Father was and how deep your love for us was and is. Lord, we thank you that uh, you came not to judge the world or to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved. Lord, give us that kind of heart for our world. Not anger and hostility, maybe weeping, maybe having to, to bear some of the consequences of others, but Lord, that we would participate in what you are doing and what done in the world in the way that you taught us to, with the power that you taught us to as we lean deeply upon you. Amen. I want to give you a little different experience than your musical palate might be used to. I don't know about you, I remember, you know, growing up in the prairies, somehow curry never made it to our part of the world. And you'll think, boy, we were, you know, depraved and, uh, you know, just lost out so much in life. And also we lived with an Indian family for a while when Elaine and I first got married and we rented a basement suite in the bottom and they would, I suddenly got this taste of Indian food at first. I didn't quite know what to do with it. And then I began to think, wow, my taste buds didn't know what to do. And then it's like, this is really good. Mm-hmm, right? Well, this, this morning, isn't the spiciness, spice of curry. This is simplicity. This is from a different musical tradition, but the song that I wanna, we want to teach you this morning, and we hope to add more elements to this in the weeks to come, is based upon the first verse of Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. In God I trust. And this... It's a Teze song, if you're familiar with that, but it's meditative. Somebody thought, oh, is this monastic? Well, maybe it has that kind of sound to it, but it's simple. It's simple. It can actually be sung in a round, and so we are going to sing this song through. You're just going to follow me on just singing the basic part through, okay? And then along the way, some of the other singers are going to sing, you know, another part of it that you will do in future weeks, just so that you can hear what it might be like to be able to sing in parts as we sing in round. But sometimes when the Bible calls us to meditate on God's word, I love the word meditate in Hebrew. It's used of uh, other places of, of a lion. He's got his prey and now he's meditating on it. <laughs> it's, for, it's for this growling. He's just like savoring it. 
I like that image. Because it's a way of savoring. Martin Luther said, the person who sings prays twice. Because you're savoring it. And so it's just like, yes, this is a morsel, but this is an important one. These are the kinds of things, I don't know if this is the song that Jesus did, but these are the kinds of things that Jesus did to ingrain God's word right into his heart. And then have that, you know, to call on in those situations when he needed to know the Lord is my light and my salvation. So, you're ready to learn? It's really simple. The Lord is my light, my light and salvation. In God I trust, in God I trust. The Lord is my light, my light and salvation. In God I trust. In God I trust, the Lord is my light, my light and salvation. In God I trust, in God I trust, the Lord is my light, my light and salvation. In God I trust, in God I trust. Amen. So now on those meditative moments, you can sing, The Lord is my light. And on the celebrative moments, you can sing, Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Just a reminder that uh, Layla uh, will be, and uh, Yosef, they will be meeting in the conference room, which is just go, as soon as you go out, and you can pick up a coffee, and then you turn into the room just immediately to your left, and you can find out uh, more. It's an information meeting, and if you'd like to be involved, but it's good to have information first and to, and to meet uh, Layla and find out more about her sister. And, uh, and the choir... You are to uh, gather here for your first practice, practicing, and if you have not yet signed up, you can still come and, uh, and join us for that. And if you would like prayer, uh, we have some people from our prayer team will be available here at the front, to my left, to your right, and I encourage you to, to take advantage of that. Perhaps you've never really fully surrendered your life to Jesus before because you didn't realize what it was that the big deal is about. <laughs> take advantage of that. Or maybe you've just been struck anew that you have even more to thank him for than you realized. And to do that, or perhaps you need prayer in a wilderness that you are experiencing you are going through. Let us go and serve the Lord. Amen.